The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our Old Testament reading comes to us from Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut, out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God, we thank you for your word, the story of your grace. <clears throat> so let me ask you a question. How would you be able to determine or know if someone is righteous? First, let's, let's help us all get on the same page with a definition of righteous. Someone who's righteous is someone who is completely innocent, Someone who stands before God without fear of judgment and with complete confidence that this relationship, yours and mine, between God and man, is completely okay. How would you know what a righteous person looks like? What's a surefire way of knowing that? What might you look for? Well, you might study what they do when no one's looking. That's a, that's a good start, maybe. You might study how they interact with the people around them. That's, that's another fair option. You might pay attention to how they spend their time, how they spend their money, how they use their talents. Those are all good options. But what if I told you the best way to know if someone is righteous is by staring at their mouth? <laughs> you guys will look really confused. What happens to the mouth of a righteous person? When they are being questioned, attacked, criticized, or condemned. Well, what happens to our mouths when someone starts raising eyebrows as to why we're wearing that? Or why we're doing that? Or why we're hanging out with that person? We have a ready list of justifications, right? Oh, oh this, it was, it was on sale. Oh, or, oh, this behavior, oh, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do. Or him or her, well, they just seemed like they needed a friend. We have something to say. 
But what happens to our mouth when someone attacks us, criticizes us, our character, and says that we've maybe lied, cheated, stolen, even on the smallest scales? Watch our lips. Mind your own business. I don't have to defend myself to you. You're wrong. Our lips start moving. We move our lips because we want to appear better than we are, more righteous than we are. We blame shift. We justify. We downplay. And as the quote in the front of your worship guide highlights, the reason we blame shift, the reason we pass the buck is because we cannot bear our own guilt. It's too much for us to handle. And it's clear by the movement of our mouth that Scripture is right in saying that none of us are righteous, not one. But read the lips of the righteous and see this, friends. His lips are not moving. As the righteous one is being questioned, is being attacked, criticized, condemned, his lips will not move. His lips will remain quiet and still. We've been walking through an overview of the book of Isaiah this fall as a church, looking at what we call true realities, truths about God and about us that maybe have become dulled to us over the course of years. And the central true reality, the theme of Isaiah is this, salvation. The reality that God saves sinners. This is what the entire Bible, friends, pretty much is telling you. God saves sinners. That's what the entire Bible is about. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah make clear that the sinners God desires to save include every single one of us whose lips are moving. All of us, individuals and nations, large groups of people, have put their trust in anything and anyone but the maker of the universe. And we are the subjects of this book, Isaiah. We are the sinners. Without someone saving us, a sinner will remain in exile, will remain banished, separated from God, and all of the good things surrounding God's presence will be not access to them. But, The second half of the book contrasts the first. If the first half of the book is collective, sinners, the second half of the book is singular, servant. How is God going to save his people? Through a singular servant. We're in the final of four servant songs in Isaiah. The first song, God promised, I'm going to be a big fan of this servant. He's going to have my hand of blessing all over him. The second song, God surprised everyone by saying, you know what? The servant is not only going to save you, Israel, he's going to save the world. The third song removes any doubt that Israel's innocent and could save themselves. It shows this contrast between sinful Israel and And the innocent servant. Finally, this song, which we also talked about last week. We see how God will save sinners. The servant saves through being 
a stand-in, a substitute for sinners. This true reality needed repeating for us this Advent week with a little different focus as we look at the last five verses of this song. And my hope is that this message will slow all of our lips down to a halt as we hear described how the servant has saved us. And here's how it is. The Father saves a sin-sick people by offering them his spotless, speechless lamb. The Father saves a sin-sick people by offering them his spotless, speechless lamb. And as we come to believe that, sinner, then we can be called to place our guilty hands onto Jesus. Let's look to the mouths of the righteous this morning in this psalm, in this song. What are they doing in this passage? What are the mouths saying? Well, first, we have a servant, and friends, his lips aren't moving. And then second, we have the Lord, and his lips are. First point, the servant, he silently takes up your fall. And second, the Lord, he smiles in saving us all. So the servant, he silently takes up your fall. And the Lord, he smiles in saving us all. First, the servant, he silently takes up your fall. Look with me at the first half of this part of the poem, starting in verse 7. It says, he, that's the servant we're talking about. He was oppressed. This has to do with like harsh physical treatment. Like a slave master cracking the whip as the slave tries to plow the field. He was oppressed. Then it says, and afflicted. And that's, you don't see it in the English, but it says he was oppressed while he was the one being afflicted. There's a choice that the servant is making to being under the whip here. The servant is not avoiding the treatment. He's giving himself to it. And while he is, look at his lips. Yet he opened not his mouth. The servant has not walked into the wrong place at the wrong time and go, whoops, what am I doing here? He has placed himself in this circumstance willingly, unashamedly. If he hadn't, his lips would be moving, wouldn't they? Why, why are you doing this? This makes no sense. Knock it off. But that's not what we see. He doesn't open his mouth. Isaiah continues the description. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Just prior to this passage, Isaiah had written, we like sheep have gone astray. And now Isaiah is writing about another sheep. And what's he doing? He's not wandering all over the place making a mess of things. No. He's one who's willingly standing on the slaughter floor ready to be cut open. One who is keeping quiet to finish what has been started. 
Behold the Lamb of God who is taking on the sin of the world. The servant is trusting in a will greater than his own, which can keep him from having to open his mouth. Not my will, but my Father's is being done. Isaiah goes on to describe what happens to the servant by oppression, which means like barrenness. He doesn't have any kids. And judgment, meaning there was a courtroom involved where he was given a trial. He was taken away, rejected basically, taken out of the picture. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Well, this is all going on. There's a reality that when you hear this as a Jewish listener, that this servant, this servant is living the worst life according to a Jew. He's got no kids. That's a terrible future. He's got no future prospects at all. He's just heading to death. And he was stricken, like taken a deadly blow to the head, like a hammer, Thor's hammer to his head. That's what that means for the transgression of my people. See all of the silent decisions making that that servant is doing. I'm choosing to have no family. I'm choosing to be brought to a really bad trial. I'm choosing to go to the death. Why? To take the death blow for you, sinner. You think even after receiving this death blow that he does for someone else, there would be an honoring of him after he died like a saint. But even then, all's quiet on the servant's front. Look at the passage. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, this guy lived in word and in deed flawlessly, amazingly, more incredibly than Mother Teresa. This guy should be given a fanfare of a funeral for what he's done and what have they done to him. They give him a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Instead of given a fanfare, he is given a death and put in a grave with the wicked rich. They still treat him like he doesn't deserve. And he doesn't say anything about the injustice done to him. We have to pay attention to the servant's silence because it has such intentionality and purpose and reason behind it. I'm doing everything I'm here to do. No need to say any more. A few years ago, I was at what's called our General Assembly and what General Assembly is, is it's this yearly collection of elders from all of the churches in our denomination. <clears throat> it's called General Assembly or GA. And in GA, we're given, we're given these little voting tally machines in which we can vote on changes and issues that come up in our churches and in our church's government structure. And this particular year that I was there, a proposal had come through the pipeline to make it a mandate that a defendant, so let's say there's a pastor or an elder charged with a specific charge by someone, the, the uh, proposal coming down was that it was going to be made a mandate or be required that that person have to give a defense. 
required to say something at their trial. And as they voted and as I held my little voting tally, I'm like, no, 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 because of this passage and how this passage would come to light in Jesus before a kangaroo court of Pilate and the Pharisees. The righteous wasn't required to speak. His life was enough testimony and evidence. His presence in the courtroom, chained, whipped, bleeding, was far enough to say, I'm here to take the fall for sinners. And so in that silence, and in that posture of Jesus willingly becoming the Lamb of God, sinner, this morning, place your guilty hands onto Jesus. Nothing else needs to be said by you. The servant, he's not waiting for your right combination of words of repentance or I'll make things better, I promise, to come out of your mouth. He's not waiting for you to go around and tirelessly fix everything that you've broken. No, his silence speaks and it says, I'm here to take your fall. As you think of every sorry and sad sin committed by your guilty hands. Stop filling your mouth with excuses. It's, I do this because my parents made me this way. Or it's because I didn't know better. Or it's because that devil made me do it. No, you did it. It's on you. Practice the servant's silence by then putting the weighty death blow that you deserve for all of your sin that you have done onto him. His lips aren't moving. Yours don't need to be either. Oh, if our churches would just get quieter with people's repentance in response to the Lamb of God not opening his mouth. We talk too much. But he didn't open his mouth, and he was the only one who had a right to. His lips are still, and his love for you is overfilled. Put your hands, guilty ones, onto Christ. But second point, someone's lips are moving, and they're the Lord's, the Father's. Because the Lord, he smiles in saving us all. Look with me at verses 10 to 12. Starting in verse 10, as we hear what's happening behind the scenes of all this awful stuff happening to the servant. As we read a verse this morning that I have wrestled with for most of my adult life following Jesus. And it's a verse that more recently has finally been a verse that I can celebrate since I began reading the Bible. And it's this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet, when we hear that word yet, it should have a power like winter solstice does in my own heart. Something's turning around here. Something's changing here. It was the will of the Lord to crush the servant, huh? You're going to look at this verse initially and just be like, man, the Lord seems cruel. 
But friends, it gets worse. The translation, the will of the Lord doesn't do it justice. It should actually be translated even more positively. The Lord delighted in crushing him. The Lord found an incredibly great pleasure in crushing Jesus. Oh. Not only that, he has put him to grief, which means he has made him sick. He injected in him sickness. We initially have a strong reaction against these phrases because it seems so counterintuitive and confusing. How could the father be smiling, delighting, and crushing or blowing to smithereens his son, the one he calls his beloved? Because it was the only way to save a sin-sick people. Friends, guilt is not a condition that can be removed by just making up for it. By doing more good than the bad you've done. The person remains guilty of a crime even though there may be other good behaviors around them that distract for a time. But even these good behaviors are laced with guilt as they serve sometimes as manipulation to get out of jail free. No, guilt is like a sharpie on the soul. It's permanent. The only way in which guilt can be removed is for the guilty to do the time for their crime. I mean crimes, plural. I mean crimes upon crimes upon crimes upon crimes. And as the guilt adds up, the hope of being able to do the time goes down quickly. There's no way I could pay all this back. I don't have enough time and I'll keep messing up again. So the Lord smiles because in crushing the servant, him and his beloved son have made a way for you, someone to pay your penalty. Someone who holds all the time of the world in his hands. Someone innocent who's willing to be your guilty. Someone who's, <coughs> excuse me, whose arms are wide and deep and long and high enough to hold every sinner's death sentence. <coughs> Verse 11 says this, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. During the cross, during the crushing that the Father is delighting in, the Father's not cruel to leave the servant in the dark. This servant, this single guy who doesn't have a family and is dying on a tree as a guilt offering, he's shown something. Something a Jew would consider a great success of a life. What has he shown? A future family that he's making by this sacrifice. A family that he is raising back from the dead. He's showing him a new heaven and a new earth and a kingdom which will never end because of what this silent servant is doing. What could make a father smile more than witnessing his son want to show the world his father's love? 
John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Out of the anguish of his soul, the scripture says, as Jesus writhed and contorted in suffocating pain on the cross, he shall see. He shall see the future family he's making, the future kingdom God is constructing. He shall see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, by the Father showing the Son the future light of his plan. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? He will make many sick people well. Leprous people clean, sin pe sinful people whole, and he shall bear their iniquities. The silent servant, in love of his perfect father's will and delight, shall do the time for all of humanity's crime. Look what happens as a result in the last verse of today's passage. Therefore, I will divide him a portion, an inheritance with the many. And he shall divide the spoil. That's everything that you gather after a battle against an enemy. He will divide the spoil with the strong, with the ones who in their weakness are made well by him. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Make no mistake about it. This portion, this inheritance, this spoil, it doesn't come from the people. It doesn't come from Israel's righteousness. It doesn't come from church people's righteousness. It only comes from one servant, one man, one holy offering for guilt. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the servant of man. He has the one who has defeated death and sin. He is the one who has caused the victory. <coughs> the burnt offering. If you're familiar with the Old Testament... The burnt offering was the offering to make atonement between God and man for sin. What is atonement? Well, if you think about that word and break it up, it's an easy way to remember it. At one meant. It's making relationship between God and man at one again. And with the burnt offering, what would happen is when the animal died... It was symbolically dying for the offerer's sin. But this offering, the burnt offering, was very personal. Because the guilty would use their hands to mark the transfer of guilt. The sinner would put their hands on the animal. Leviticus 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Sinner, place your guilty hand onto Jesus. 
as he puts his loving arms around you. If you have done this, if you have transferred the guilt, your guilt, onto the crucified Christ, remember, like the animal, he has died. And with his death, so too your sin. No longer live as if your identity is as a guilty sinner. No, you are a righteous saint. Rest every day of your life in the trust and hope that the transfer has been successfully and, friends, permanently made. Close your mouth to the need to defend yourself or justify yourself to anyone. And open your mouth to declare with quiet confidence the reason for the hope within you. You have died with Christ, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ, the righteous servant, who lives within you. Let's pray. Father, there are those among us today who are walking as if they are still carrying the weight of their sin. There are those today who have made the trust transfer, have placed their guilty hands onto a crucified Christ and have experienced and understood his love and his forgiveness. But we've gone back. We've gone backwards and taking back that guilt back onto ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would remind us today of the confidence we have that we are cleansed and forgiven in Christ no longer to go back to that old man or old woman that we were. And Father, we pray for those here who may not have placed their guilty hands onto a crucified Christ. I pray that you would while it is still today, call them to a transfer to take every awful, evil thing that they have done, that we have done, to name it as that, to see it for what it is, awful, evil, wicked, to no longer make excuses for our sin, but to call it as we see it. And to take that guilt and to take our hands, whether raised in our hearts or raised physically, to take our hands and to say, it's on you because you were willing to silently bear it. Would you do that work in each one of us this morning that we may walk as children of the Lamb. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.